Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, I aspired to be a lot of things. We'll cast aside WWF wrestler, astronaut, and professional kickballer for now, though a boy can dream. Originally, I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my family and become a teacher, but I'd heard too many stories from them about helicopter parents and lackluster administrators. Oh, <laughs> and of course you had those pesky school shootings. I wanted to be an architect like George Costanza, but that involved math, and if I can't count it on my fingers, I'm rendered useless. I wanted to be a psychologist, because I had dated so many psychopaths, I needed to know what made them tick, and why it was so attractive. But throughout those phases, I always came back to show business. Hollyweird, if you will. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do in entertainment, but was interested in everything from composing film scores to being a writer, director, actor, voiceover artist, video gamer, or shock jock radio host. These past few months in lockdown has really given me time to reflect, which can be a dangerous thing, especially at three in the morning. What makes this industry appealing to me? I think it's because my generation was one of the first to have entertainment at our fingertips. Back in the day, when a film was released in theaters, that was your shot to see it. That was true fear of missing out, because once it was gone, you were left with just a memory. Did you see Horse Feathers? No, I went to the jazz club with Mildred. But in the 80s and 90s, you had a convergence of all these platforms giving life to forgotten films. Cable television was becoming more prominent in homes across America. There was HBO, which was a game changer. This was an opportunity to not only watch movies from the comfort of your own home, but also to see special events like the Pennsylvania Polka Festival. Yeah, that's a real thing. I didn't make that up. And they aired it. VCRs were flying off the shelves. Now you could record these movies off the television and create your own library of films, comedy specials, and music concerts. Then Blockbuster Video, Hollywood Video, and your own local video stores allowed you to rent movies for a couple of days for a few bucks. On television, Nickelodeon launched as the first network for kids. My generation was seeing people our own ages on screen in leading roles. They weren't resigned to being supporting characters who come in, say a wise, cracky line, then leave. They were the stars. Now, I know you had shows like Leave it to Beaver back in the 50s and 60s, but this was different. You can't do that on television. Are you afraid of the dark? Clarissa explains it all. Which, by the way, she really didn't. The Adventures of Pete and Pete, Salute Your Shorts, Hey Dude. In seeing kids your own age on screen, it made it feel, in a way, that you were seeing a reflection of yourself. I would know what that theory was called if I'd become a psychologist. Add to that MTV, where you had the opportunity to see your favorite rock, pop, and hip-hop stars every day. There was colorful makeup, extravagant outfits, long feathered hair. 
and that was just the metal bands. But how can you look at videos like Girls Just Want to Have Fun, Sledgehammer, Take On Me, and not want to be part of that scene? There was the emergence of video games and home computers, Intellivision, Atari, Commodore 64, Nintendo, Sega, Apple IIe. On WPix11 in New York, there was a game show during commercials called TV Picks, where a viewer could call in and play video games live on air. This was the height of technology. Now, I know this is making me sound like Old Man River, and knowing that song kind of proves the case, but I think this is the foundation of why myself and many people out there who were born in the 80s and 90s gravitated toward entertainment, and why that era continues to be prominent in people's lives with nostalgic shows like Stranger Things, The Goldbergs, Glow, Pose, Cobra Kai, but the internet. The internet brought all that to the next level smartphones, social media, apps. There are more ways to entertain yourselves than ever, though we might be entering an age of too much content. It's hard keeping up. There are movies and TV series that I've had on my watch lists for at least five years now. I've discovered shows this year that have been around for three seasons. Shows have been canceled that I had no idea were even greenlit. It can be truly overwhelming. I log on to Netflix and scroll through the categories, then after 20 minutes, I'm like, eh, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to watch Back to the Future again. Add to the mix all these streaming services with their own catalogs, and I feel like Princess Buttercup in the Lightning Sand just buried under mounds and mounds of unwatched titles. That's one of the reasons I decided to start this podcast, to motivate me to finally see these movies and TV pilots. Watching a good film inspires me to be a better filmmaker, writer, and composer. The other is, I've been speaking out loud to myself lately, and it doesn't seem as crazy when there's a mic in front of your face. Now for the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is skip it. Two stars is watch at your own risk. Three stars, standard fare. Four stars, worth checking out. Five stars, must see. Now if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca or Jaws or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie, The Nice Guys from 2016 starring Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe as a pair of private investigators in 1977 Los Angeles who team up to locate a girl named Amelia in conjunction with the mysterious death of porn star Misty Mountains. Dun, dun, dun. It was directed and co-written by Shane Black, who's most famous for helming Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Iron Man 3. He also acted in one of my top five favorite action movies, Predator, playing the role of Hawkins. There was also a character named Jim Hopper, so I guess we know where the Duffer Brothers found inspiration. The film starts off with the Warner Brothers logo from the mid-1970s. I like when movies do that. I think it really sets the tone for a period piece. I believe Zodiac did that as well. They used the Paramount logo with the matte painting as opposed to the CGI version. It's a nice touch. We're introduced to Russell Crowe in the part of Jackson Healy, a rough-around-the-edges enforcer who lets his fists do the talking. Then there's Ryan Gosling, who plays Holland March, a hapless private investigator who has no qualms about bilking old ladies for money. Their relationship is the typical buddy-cop formula. You have the loose cannon bruiser and the somewhat by-the-book straight man. Both were perfectly cast for the roles, and their on-screen chemistry is apparent. You can tell they're having fun with this. 
filling out their trio is March's daughter, Holly. Normally when I'm watching a movie, I don't like any distractions, so my cell phone, tablet, laptop, they're nowhere to be found. But I couldn't place where I knew this actress from. It bothered me so much I had to stop the movie and look it up. She's portrayed by Angori Rice. Yeah, that, that clears it up. She appeared in the Spider-Man Home movies, playing Betty Brant in Spider-Man Homecoming, Spider-Man Far From Home, and I would assume she's in the highly anticipated third installment as well. The Matt Watch That podcast actually got an exclusive synopsis for that movie, and I'm going to share it right now. After his identity is revealed, Peter Parker keeps a low profile by managing the household in Spider-Man Homemaker. (laughs) Oh, that's so stupid. (laughs) Ah, But I'm tickled. All right. So their investigation leads to an anti-pollution protest group and a very funny interaction with them. Here they meet Chet, played by Jack Kilmer, son of Val. He is involved with Amelia and her boyfriend Dean and helps move the plot along. It's a small but quirky part and he fits the bill. I have been really impressed with everything that I've seen him in. Palo Alto, Wobble Palace, The Spoils Before Dying. He was in a movie called The Stamford Prison Experiment from 2015, which was based on a true story, and I think there was a documentary on it as well. The movie was okay, but it has an incredibly talented cast of performers on the rise at that time. Ty Sheridan, Ezra Miller, Keira Gilchrist, Moises Arias, Miles Heiser, and there was a Sky High reunion with Nicholas Braun and Michael Angarano. So I have no transition here. This is my odd movie observation. I'm not sure if this is a Ryan Gosling signature or entirely coincidental, but this is the second movie that I've seen him where he used the word schwatz. The first was Crazy Stupid Love in the sauna scene. I don't remember if in the notebook at some point he told Rachel McAdams to check out his schwatz, maybe in a deleted scene. That's a very specific word. You don't just come out with a schwatz. I mean, some do, and they end up me too'd. Along the way, Healy and March are confronted by a pair of baddies who are hot on the trail of Amelia. She is quite popular. One of the antagonists is played by Keith David, who is in Requiem for a Dream, Armageddon, The Thing, and the best movie starring a professional wrestler in the lead, They Live. Yes, that is a very strong opinion. What are you going to throw at me, Mr. Nanny? That film is most memorable for the fight scene with Rowdy Roddy Piper, which was parodied by South Park, I believe frame by frame, in season 5 between Timmy and Jimmy. Just look it up, it's hilarious. I can't tell you the name of the episode because it's so un-PC, and I don't feel like being cancelled. The antagonists inform Helian March that a hitman was dispatched to kill Amelia. The character is named John Boy and played by Matt Bomer. He is chilling as a merciless assassin, and so different from his previous roles. Kim Basinger plays the mother of Amelia and an official with the Department of Justice. It was nice having an L.A. confidential reunion with Russell Crowe, though their scenes are minimal. From there, the storylines get a little convoluted. It took me two viewings to understand what was going on, but it's really the characters and their interactions that make you stay involved in the film. I could watch a trilogy of movies with Crowe and Gosling in these roles, and I hope that comes to pass. I think the movie made back its budget, but it it wasn't a hit, so it's highly unlikely. There are some truly laugh-out-loud moments, a bit of slapstick, physical comedy, consistently witty with good one-liners and banter. The funniest scene happens during a party at the house of a movie producer, which Healy and March infiltrate. It's really funny and worth watching just for that. I really like the direction of Shane Black. 
He doesn't do any fancy camera movements. He captures a moment and stays out of the way, allows the actors to be the centerpiece, not the camera jib shot. The cinematography is great, and it feels like a period piece from the 70s. Kudos, kudos, kudos to the set designers and the crew for that transformation. The soundtrack is spot on with a good balance of songs that are familiar favorites like Papa Was a Rolling Stone and Get Down On It, along with some hidden gems from yesteryear like Baz and Couldn't Get It Right. The score, composed by John Ottman and David Buckley, could fit in any episode of Charlie's Angels, Chips, or SWAT. Definitely retro. Highlights include the main theme, Kids Today, and It's Not a Flight. The Nice Guys is under two hours, which I appreciate. I don't have the patience or the bladder for anything longer, even with the ability to pause. Ultimately, the movie comes down to two dicks, a spiral fracture of the left radius, blue face, a projectionalist, whores and stuff, mermaids, a lot of blood, some rumpy pumpy, and an Iron Man. I give it four out of five stars. Take off half a star if you're offended by nudity and toxic masculinity. If you've seen The Nice Guys and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along. Each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called MattWatchThat Playback. I'm a musician at heart. I started playing trumpet when I was 8 or 9, bass guitar at 14. Along the way, I've tried to master electric guitar and keyboards, and I'm passable at best. But I've always loved drums. I was the kid that took out the pots and pans from the cabinet and bashed on them with a wooden spoon. My parents got the hint. They bought me a drum set when I was 4 years old. I was inspired by Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac and Liberty DeVito, who was the long-term drummer of Billy Joel, on his biggest albums and tours. Drummers are the heartbeat of a band. I've seen too many groups replace their drummer, and it changes the dynamics of the songs. When John Bonham passed away, Led Zeppelin knew they couldn't continue with another drummer. There was only one John. And I think that was proven with Tony Thompson and Phil Collins at Live Aid. Not all drummers are equal. Some go overboard with their fills, others are too cymbal crazy. And no matter how much I love drummers, drum solos stink. I mean, they're great for the first... Seven and a half seconds, all the stage lights turn to their platform, and they start And at first, you're like, this is a really cool musical interlude. But then it keeps going, and going, and going. And slowly you start to realize that you're in the middle of a drum solo. And then you think, I wonder how long the line to the bathroom is. I'm also not a fan of small drum sets. I don't know why the current trend is to have a snare, mounted tom, floor tom, and that's it. Give me 10 to 12 drums and 60 to 70 cymbals. That's what I want to see. Which brings me to Delta Empire. He is a masked musician who posts drum covers on YouTube. Most are of rock or alternative bands, but every so often he'll throw in an Adele song or Hans Zimmer score. He's an amazing drummer. Every beat or cymbal hit has a purpose, and it's never out of place. His timing is impeccable. I can watch multiple videos in a row and never get bored by his technique. To show the variety, I've posted two of his drum covers, Pearl Jam Evenflow and Taylor Swift Out of the Woods. But there are over 300 videos to enjoy. That's Delta Empire on YouTube or view the clips at Matt Watch That Playback. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'll let you chew on that for a moment. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. 
Today I'm talking about The Mick. It was a short-lived series on Fox starring Caitlin Olsen from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia fame. She stars as a bit of a trashy aunt who is forced to take care of her affluent sister's children and adjust to high society living. It's a fish-out-of-water plot that totally works, cringe humor at its finest, all the characters are flawed, most of them unlikable, they're always at odds trying to outdo one another, it's so much fun to watch. It's been a while since I found a sitcom that genuinely makes me laugh, and this is the one. I will binge-watch the episodes once a year. I do not tire of it. The show went for two seasons, 37 episodes from 2017 to 2018. Unfortunately, it does end in a bit of a cliffhanger, and it would have been interesting to see how the characters develop, but it's not disappointing, unlike the ending of Elf. You can stream the mech on Hulu or buy the series from Amazon. It's definitely well worth it. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I do plan on having an interactive element, but I need listeners first. So follow, subscribe, like, and spread the word. Until next time, good night, John Boy. The first was Crazy Soup. It's. Oh. Matt, watch that playback. All right. I don't like any distractions, so my cell phone, tablet, laptop. Laptop? Laptop. Oh, Muffy. She stars as a bit of a trashy aunt who is forced to take care of her affluent children's sisters. What?